weeks ago, if you were here, I spoke about two sides of a coin, the flip side of the coin. The first side of that coin we've been doing a lot around at the start of this year, looking at identity, looking at who we are, that we're kings and priests, and, and all those sorts of things. But over the next three weeks, I want to use that message as a foundation to where we, we're sort of looking at the next three weeks together as we journey through Ephesians. So the first side of that coin, like I said, was the righteousness message. It was the identity message. It was the sense of us hidden in Christ and how God legally looks at us. The second side of that coin, just for, just for your understanding and those of you that might have missed it, um, the second side of that coin is that Christ is in us, uh, which is why the, uh, the writer says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he, we hang on to Jesus, uh, who is in us, who has promised us that we will enter glory with him. That this message is actually really around the dynamics of the new creation. That Christ in us empowers us to live victorious today. Whether that be victorious over sin, whether that be victorious over every season in life that we've been talking about through the song Cornerstone this morning, we are called to live victoriously as the church in Jesus Christ and Christ in us who is the hope of glory. So as we look at that flip side, I just sense that the Holy Spirit was, was leading us to look at something a little bit practical because it's really good to talk about the truths of the gospel. It's really good to talk about the, th the truths of who we are and who Christ is in us. But we need to put some handles on it so that we can understand what we're called to do as the church. Because if we don't understand what we're called to do, we're going to lose a little bit of um, traction in a sense. And, and we lose the ability to to want to know more and grow more. And we become complacent. So when we find out what we can do, we do it and then we grow. Isn't that sort of how life actually works? So just in introducing this today, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 8 to 10, which is kind of the foundation of our next three weeks. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, we could spend a month just talking about these two verses, and we still wouldn't open up the truths that are packed into this verse. But it says, by grace, as this is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith get an amen there if you want because that's Paul and it's like pretty good for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God so everybody say that is grace it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast so salvation is not earned so if you're here this morning and you've never heard the message of salvation, you've never heard the message of the cross, you don't know Jesus, let me first say to you, salvation can never be earned. It is a free gift given by God himself, extended to his children to respond through by faith. You, you can never earn your way into heaven, into the presence of God. Which is great because that's a good equal. It means I can't boast about what I've done to get myself some form of um, privilege before God. It's not what I did, but it's what Jesus did for me. And as you heard through what Teresa was saying, by that he calls you royalty, which puts us on an even kilter. There is no hierarchy. We're even. It's open because that is the free gift offered to all. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This whole point of workmanship, it's about, without opening it up massively, it's, it's really about, the word is poimia, which is sort of the basis of our word poem or poetry that we have today. It's sort of this workmanship in a sense that you're God's poem or you're God's craftsmanship. You're this, um, even this sculpture that God has made that he's continuing to make as you walk in the righteousness that he's given you. So you're this continual growth of this workmanship because of the works he's prepared in advance for you to do. This is actually about maturing practically. Okay? It's not a once-off deal. This is a, I'm saved and now I'm, I'm opening up to be all that God wants me to be and has created me to be. So as we look at focusing on, first of all today, chapter 4 of Ephesians, I want it to be this practical sense of saying, first of all, I'm saved by grace, full stop, period, right there. That is the truth. I cannot add to that. I cannot take away from and it's for the purpose that none of us can boast because we're all on the same page. When we know Christ and we know his salvation, we're all on the same page. But that being true, each and every one of us has a different calling and a different purpose, as does every different church has a different calling, a different purpose, a different expression of heaven. And when we, we come to the understanding of that, whether that be at a corporate level, at an individual level, we understand that by finding our purpose, we begin to sing because God is making our hearts hum. Does that make sense? So today, let's open to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to look at what are some of these good works that God has prepared for us to do in advance. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, it says this, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So what are these good works? Well, firstly, one of these good works is to actually walk worthy of the calling of God. That's what Paul writes there in verse 1. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. It's this sense of um, walking before God in the worth that he bestows upon us, calling us that workmanship. So even though, even though I cannot work to get myself into heaven, like that's, a, that's a truth that we will never, um, never ever overwrite. It doesn't take away the um, responsibility upon us as Christians under Christ to actually work for the kingdom of God. I think this trips up a lot of people. I'm saved by grace, therefore I can just continue on in my mellow life, and that's the way it is. But God doesn't want you to live in mellow yellow state. He actually wants you to live in a state that is the reason he created you. 
to bring him glory, to walk worthy of what he says about you and who you are. And, and the moment we start to walk this walk, he appreciates the fact that we're walking that walk in faith and we begin to get an understanding of what doors are opening before us. That's the whole principle of faith, isn't it? Like we, God calls us, but we don't actually get the fullness of the calling until we take a step and then another step and then another step. Because God doesn't give us all the steps in one hit, because if he did, then you would run. Because where God sees you and where you see yourself, they're like kind of polar opposites. Does that make sense? Like you don't see yourself the way God does. But when you, you begin to um, prescribe to what God is saying about you, each step, each moment you take, each step you take closer to who God's called you to be, then you can be the, expressed, the expression of that workmanship that he is saying you are. You can be that poem or that, that chiseled sculpture that he's saying that you actually are. So if we're to walk worthy of this calling, he then outlays for us some ways we can walk worthy. So verse 2, one of the ways, I'm going to look at these four words. It says lowliness. Verse 2 says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and then verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So if I'm to walk worthy of the calling, it means I need to be working out the very things that he then prescribes for us as a church to outwork. So this whole sense of what is lowliness? Well, it's humility. Uh, lowliness means modesty, humble-mindedness, uh, a sense of moral insignificance, and a humble attitude of selfish or unselfish concern to the welfare of others. It is a total absence of arrogance, conceit, and haughtiness. Only by abstaining from self-glorification can members of the Christian community maintain unity and harmony. So this whole sense of being lowly before God is... We accept who God calls us to be, but we're not going to promote ourselves above and beyond that. And we need to hear that as a church because every one of us are different people and we are together brought to outwork the beautiful um, expression that God's called us to be. So we're talking about this sense of unity. We're talking about uh, walking worthy of the calling which God has here for us as a church and as individual members belonging to that. And we do that by being lowly, uh, by being uh, humble, um, by having that attitude of lifting others up above ourselves and promoting and honouring them. Uh, Paul says this, if you want to look at it later on, Acts chapter 20 and verse 19, he demonstrates humility toward the Ephesian church. And, and that's what he actually writes there in Acts 20 and 19. The second word there is gentleness. It is a disposition that is even-tempered, tranquil, balanced in spirit, unpretentious, and that has the passions under control. All passions, whatever they may be, you have them under control. This gentleness, the word is being translated best as meekness. And who knows that Jesus was meek and he also said the meek will inherit the earth. So th this whole sense of... Um, 
it's not saying, it's not indicating by any way weakness, but of power and strength under control. That is what meekness actually is. Like, there's a few of you guys here that are probably outdo me in strength. I know that. I had an arm wrestle with Shane the other day and he smashed me. I know that. Okay? But being able to be strong and powerful can be very dangerous at times if you don't have control of it. Okay? Does that make sense? What about a, a storm? There, that is uh, untapped potential in a storm and look how dangerous it can be with the rain that has dumped on Sydney, for example, and the whole East Coast, flooding and things like that. Uh, so, so it's not, meekness is not this sense of not being strong, but it's being in control of who you are. If someone challenges you, you don't fight back and rear up and, and challenge them back and get into an argument. It's actually being in control of how you speak and take on board what they're saying and then be able to respond powerfully and with authority. There's a difference. Um, but like I said, the word is best translated as meekness. The person who possesses this quality pardons injury, corrects faults, and rules his own spirit well. And aren't we called to forgive? Isn't that who we're meant to be? We're meant to be, we're, like we, you hear it often with forgiven forgiveness. This is one of the traits of being meek and gentle. Um, you see that in Paul's encouragement in 1 Timothy 6.11 to Timothy. The second, third word there is long-suffering, or in other words, patience. The word denotes uh, lenience or forbearance, fortitude, patient endurance, long-suffering, the ability to endure persecution and ill-treatment. It describes a person who has the power to exercise revenge, but instead exercises restraint. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And in accordance to Hebrews 6, 11 to 12, um, we're told to imitate those traits. So I'll give you an example, a real-world example. Some of you aren't on Facebook, but that's okay. Um, the last week or so, I've been a little bit proactive in my voice. I've been a bit vocal in encouraging people to actually start looking into the uh, politics and, and the political parties and, and seeing what is actually underneath their policies so that we can make a, um, a, a knowledgeable, for want of a better word, decision when it comes to our vote. That we don't just vote down the normal party line that we vote. So I've been trying to encourage this. Now, people have been commenting on some of the posts I've been putting up because what I've been doing is trying to put some of the political policies up or some of the news stories that have been going around, especially things like safe schools and, and marriage equality and all that sort of stuff. I've been putting them up just to start conversation with people. And that has been my whole purpose, to start conversation. But who knows, when you do that, you start getting attacked. That's what actually happens. Now, I'm not dumb. In fact, I think that in this area I'm quite wise. So therefore, I knew that was going to happen. And my wife's shaking her head. She's like, I'm not reading your posts. She just would not do it. I'm like, I'm not in an argument with anyone. But it was a number of her cousins were just like, bam, just smashing me. But they came from this position of being judgmental that I was saying what the rest of um, Australia might have been saying. But I wasn't. I was trying to encourage a conversation. So I didn't even bring up scripture. 
so-called atheist brought up scripture and said, what about this and what about this and what about this and what about this? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to argue with you because it's not the right forum to do it. So I just loved them and, and, and shared some things and obviously put some of my points across and then referred them back to my comment, which was I'm just encouraging people to read up on this stuff. And then I'm like, I got to church on Thursday. I'm like, this is awesome. This is cool. I'm getting a conversation. But what about the other hundreds of people that are watching this conversation that are sitting back thinking, oh, what's actually going on here? So I felt led to write a post that would describe me and where I was coming from in the context of who I believe Jesus had called me to be. And then I issued a challenge. If you've got a problem with me, my door's open, come in, and I will show you the goodness of God, and I won't just speak it. I'll introduce you to reality, and I won't just live by what you're saying, which was an atheistic view. I'm like, just come and talk to me, and I'll do that. And what I felt that I was doing was that I was, even though I was long-suffering, people were saying, oh, Steve's feeling bad because he's had to support himself in his own. And I'm like, no, that's not what the purpose was. And I got amazing comments from people encouraging me, and I'm like, that's all good, guys. I'm not, I'm not cranky. I'm just trying to be an open witness so that people understand that this is a conversation that we can have without getting bitter, without throwing hatred, without throwing judgmental um, attitudes and thoughts behind it. Because... When we're the light, we need to reflect the light. We need to reveal the real light, which is Jesus in love. And if I can't accept a, an atheist view of me, then I'm not revealing love. Does that make sense? So through all of that, what Jesus was teaching me was to be a lot long-suffering and encourage them and pray for them. Because they don't know. So then the third, fourth word, we have this bearing in love. Um, the sense to endure. First, four, first three words just to remind you, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and then fourthly, bearing in love, to endure. Uh, the word carries the idea of perseverance, of tolerating, of bearing with, of putting up with, standing firm and not losing courage under pressure. Um, Paul, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 1.4, talks about this. If you're taking notes, I'm who knows we've got to bear with each other here in the church? Like, reality is, you've got to put up with me. All right? I didn't put you in those seats. God did. All right? So you've got to actually bear with me. Sorry about that. I'm not going to apologize for a long time. All right? That's what's happened. But I've got to bear with you as well. That's the, the opposite side of the coin. But I love that. I love that about the church. Because... That's what it is. This, is. this is actually where we cut our teeth. This is where we learn to mature. This is where we learn to live as Christ to the world. It's by bearing with one another. If we can't bear with one another, then how are we going to represent Jesus to a world that can't stand us? And then the last word, fifth word in verse 3, you'll see there is endeavoring to keep the unity. Endeavoring, which is eagerness. Um, to exert oneself, make every effort or to give diligence, make haste, be zealous, strain every nerve. Listen to that. Have you been that eager to strain every nerve at something you're doing? Um, and further the cause assiduously, or in other words, tire, tirelessly. It combines thinking and acting, planning and producing. And yet, I have conversations with people all the time that say, God doesn't run the plan. 
Yes, he does. He, he does. Um, I mean, he spoke, the earth came into existence, and he put all the laws in place that keep the earth together. Uh, that's a plan. If you don't believe it, go and read it. So it, it, it sees a need and promptly does something about it. Eagerness, this, this whole sense of endeavoring to do good. Um, the word covers inception, action, and follow-through. Um, and the best place you can see that, Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul's talking about when the elders of the church in Jerusalem gave him the permission to go out and share amongst the Gentiles. They gave one condition to him, that he would remember the poor. And he says, that with which I was eager to do. It's this word, the connotation is what he's using. Eager to remember the poor. And, and that's what we're remembering here, that we need to endeavor we need to be eager in every opportunity, even straining at times, to keep the unity of the Spirit for the bond of peace. That's not my job. That's our job as a church. And when we hear of disharmony, we hear of disunity happening, we need to strain every effort to make peace and to get in the middle of that and say, that's not who God's called us to be. And it's for this purpose, the bond of peace. You can't have unity without peace. We're talking about walking worthy of the calling. You know, if we concentrated on these things, we would be walking worthy of a calling unto God. The attributes all reveal a level of Christian maturity. When one walks worthy of the calling of Christ, what is being said is they are living from a place of maturity which then reveals unity. I think we look at it the other way around. We think if we've got unity, um, then we'll grow into maturity. But I think maturity reveals our unity. And why do I say that? Well, we've got a number of people that have left over the last 10 years of our church. I know the last 10 years very well because I've been in the leadership of it all. And the number one complaint that came forth, the wording might sound strange to you, but the number one thing or the reason that people were leaving was because they, A, felt God was calling them out of the church. That reality is God doesn't call you out of the church. He places the members into the church. So that one didn't sit. And the other one was that we weren't feeding them. Like, we were giving milk and not meat. And that's just a complete misunderstanding of what is written in Hebrews. So there's these two arguments that, A, God had called them out, and the other one was that we weren't feeding them, we weren't treating them as mature. But I flipped that on its head because what actually, biblical maturity actually is the church being unified as one. So God doesn't call you out of unity, he actually calls you in. And the more you be unified, the more mature you actually are. And the more you grow in your understanding of who God's called you to be. Now, a reflection on some of those people are that they're no longer in the church. And there's lots of things going on in their life that they can't explain. But they're blaming God. They listen to the wrong voice. If we seriously want to mature, we need to be in church more and not 
leaving church. Does that make sense? That is spiritual Christian maturity right there. That's why Paul says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints. Because that's where you will grow the most. As we walk worthy of the calling, the good works that God has called for us are revealed. That we're united with Christ and that we love one another. I'll put it another way. The truths we have learnt this year regarding our identity should bring about the fruit of unity which ultimately reveals a mature church. Unity will always reveal maturity. It will always show me as a leader in the church where you are. If you're not unified with the cause and the vision that God has for me, for, for the church, not for me, but for the church, it shows the level of maturity and that you're not willing to grow beyond where you are. Jesus says it this way in his prayer, in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, or they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. In them, and you in me, or I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. This whole prayer reveals the heart of Jesus to bring unity amongst the followers of Christ so that the world may know. Christian unity then is vital in Christian maturity and growth. What are these good works God's caused you to do? It's to come into Christian unity so that we can express the fullness of the kingdom of God to a broken and hopeless world. I, I say this sometimes to myself because um, I keep myself in check like this all the time. To say we are mature, there must be evidence of such. It's how the kingdom works, the principle of uh, producing fruit. There's this sense that if we're going to say that there's maturity, then there needs to be fruit of such. Um, and it must be fruit that is easily seen. John 15, 5, Jesus talks about abiding in the vine, and we've spoken about that this year. But I can't abide in a vine and be fruitful if I'm one branch on my own. Because in the vine, there are branches that are producing fruit, and there are branches that are producing leaves for the shelter and covering of that fruit. And I can't do that if I'm individual. See? It needs to be in what Paul says later in this chapter about the body of Christ. So if I pluck myself out of the church, which is, I believe, the hope of the world, then what we're doing is we're separating ourselves from the place where God will cause us to bear fruit and mature. We need to be found to Jesus, like abiding in him, together unified. Mature Christianity, then, if it is to be seen as fruit, it actually needs to look like something. Mature Christians are united 
just as their father and son, the father and the son are united, causing perfect unity. I in Christ, Christ in me, Christ in God, God in Christ. It just completes this community that he has created it to be. That's what I was saying two weeks ago when we looked at the flip side of that coin. Let's keep reading Ephesians 4.7. I'm conscious of the time. 4.7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. I've got a question. What are these gifts and what is their purpose? We were in our young adults, we've been discuss, we discussed last term a lot about gifts and we came to the understanding that these gifts are not about uh, motivation gifts, they're not about gifts of the Holy Spirit in a sense. These are actually gifts of people to the church. It says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. It's a different word, we don't need to go into it, it's a different word than the other places of gifts. And this is verse 9. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? No, we'll skip 9. We'll go to 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what are these gifts and what are these purposes? Paul then outlays them for us. Pastors, prophets, apostles, teachers, evangelists, and I think I missed one. You know, you get my images. These five, um, five ministry gifts, in a sense, to do one thing: equip the saints for ministry, for the work, for what God's called us to be, for the workmanship that He has already outlaid for each and every one of us. These passages of Scripture, they're not disconnected. It's the same letter. Paul's writing to the church in comparison. That's why it's foundational to our understanding. This word has a strong connection to perfecting. If you're in the King James Version, that's what it says, for the perfecting of the saints. It means to make fit or prepare, to train, to perfect and make fully qualified for service. Therefore, I say to us this morning, the fivefold ministry, these five gifts that were given to the church, not to hold them in high esteem in the sense that they're better or greater than anyone because they are just members within the one body like everyone else, but their purpose is defined in the fact that they are gifted to the church to equip, to train, to prepare, and to um, make ready, discipline the body to do the work of ministry. I say the fivefold ministry is not here to do all the work, but it does not excuse them of doing work either. Like Paul says to Timothy, remember to evangelize. So they're not there in the sense of telling everyone to work and they sit back and do nothing. No, that's not Christian unity. It's not Christian love. It's not the kingdom at work. But they're here to train, equip, encourage, discipline, and make ready the saints so that together we can reach the world. And I think within history of our, our um, 
a Western church, what tends to happen is we pay our tithe, and that's brilliant, but we think that that's where the buck stops. And we're paying the minister so that he can go and evangelize the world. But God is really clearly writing here through the Apostle Paul that by paying your tithe, you're doing, the one, you're doing one great thing, but when you listen and are encouraged and are discipled and equipped and empowered to present Jesus in every situation of life that you now walk, by being equipped by those leaders, you're then being the church. There's onus upon me to lead well and there's onus upon the body to respond to that leading so that we can reveal the kingdom of God. It, it's, it's more than just turning up to church and hearing the good word. It must inspire us to get out and say, if I'm going to take that on board, I need to apply it in my life. Who can I share that love with today? Does that make sense? Because then you see fruit. Someone texted me last night and they're like, um, someone's got a heap of questions for me and, and they want to know about the Sabbath. And I just said, bring them to church. You're not going to answer everyone's questions in one conversation. But by inviting them into relationship where they can discover God, their questions will be answered. And they will find their unique purpose. In you know what I mean? Like, invite, invite, invite people. We often hide behind that and say, I'm scared. But Reality is, people don't know they can come to church. They think we're a closed group at times, and we need to actually invite them, or else they will never step through the doors. What does this look like? What does it look like in a context? I'm just to try and bring a little bit of practicality, and these are just thoughts that came, and you might reject them, but that's all right. We're learning this together. What does it look like, what I'm talking about? It looks like this, Sunday mornings, coming to fellowship, rain, hail, shine, no matter what you got planned, no matter whether you got a lunch plan or not, it's coming to church and making a commitment. Because you won't grow coming once a week, month a month. You will not grow coming to church once a month. You'll feel in yourself that you've done the duty and that's the way it's going to be and you'll never grow to be the fullness that God has for your life. You will never reflect the workmanship that he's called you to be. We need to be in fellowship. It's, it's not forsaking fellowship, it's prior, prioritizing it. This is, for some of us, this is the one meal a week where we get to come together and share communion together. And for me, that makes it worth it. Um, it looks like worshiping together. It, it looks like dancing, like Hannah commented on my son's dancing. It actually looks like engaging in the worship, even in a sense, raising your hand and saying, God, I surrender to you. It, it, it looks like um, taking the Lord's table together, being in fellowship around communion. There's the whole practicality that you will find healing even in your communion. But yet, when do we apply that in our life? The more you come to church, the more you can step into believing and saying, I believe this. I'm a bit sick this morning. Well, God, I can find provision in the communion meal that I'm having now. And then as I take this bread, I believe you're healing me. You can't do that at home on your own. There's a sense of um, being equipped through the Word. And 
by being here, you add value to me because I think I'm fulfilling Ephesians 4. And then the other side of that is I believe that I then need to work harder to preach a message that's going to equip you to do the work of ministry. And it's just not going to be dry old message. It's going to be something that comes from the heart of God because of that value exchange. Does that make sense? That's Christian unity, working one together. It looks like meeting in small groups on a weekly basis for mutual encouragement, for prayer, for worship, and for study. That's actually what it looks like. It looks like coming together in the week, not just having church on Sunday and then forgetting God all the rest of the week, but coming in the middle of the week and saying, you know what, guys, I'm struggling with this. Can you pray with me? Yeah. I'm, I'm reading the Bible and in my devotion, and I'm not yet quite sure what God's saying in this area of Deuteronomy. Like, good luck to you. Right? But it looks like growing together. Christian unity, which reveals maturity, it looks like setting vision before us. Because for lack of vision, people perish. We can hear that quoted all the time. But if we don't put the vision before us, which, by the way, is to be as one. The very first point of our vision statement is to be as one. If we don't put the vision before us, then guess what? We lose a sense of being connected, being together, being partakers of what the church is doing. And then all of a sudden, we're ostracized and we're sitting down and we're like, no one loves me. No one rang me this week. No one cares for me. I'm sick and no one phoned me. And all of a sudden, the devil gets into your ear and he challenges you. And then you miss church for the next two weeks because you can't bear face the people that never rang you. Like, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, Christian unity is moving, walking, growing together. It's, it's being family. I had that conversation with Erica this morning. Where are you, Eric? There you are. Like, pregnant, having a baby. First baby, first grandchild. Mum and dad are completely overseas. Where is she going to find family? You're her family. And that's life. There is no greater community to be a part of. But what we do is we, we, we ostracize ourselves and then we say, no one loves us. And that's not Christian unity. That's just living the lie of the devil in our lives. So it looks like vision. It looks like training and equipping those identified to do what we're doing. So you'll get some young leaders growing up, and even myself at times, we'll, we'll make a mistake. But Christian unity and maturity is not to point the finger at them and ridicule them it's actually to stick a loving father heart arm around them and say guys it's all right we're with you we're supporting you as long as we're honest and we can say that we've made a mistake then we have this openness to be able to grow together no pastor is um, above reproach and no pastor is perfect in any way that's why paul talks about us being as part of the body we're one unit together um, it looks like discipleship. It looks like actually saying, you know what? There's an offer to follow someone. I'm going to put myself under their tutelage. I'm going to put myself under their teaching. And I'm going to learn because I want what they've got. That's what Jesus did when he went to Peter and he said, come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Peter decided as a 30-odd-year-old man to put himself under the tutelage of Jesus and become like him. 
there's this whole sense of this Christian discipleship that is really hot on my heart at the moment. Who are you following? Who are you leading? Who are you fathering? Who are you mothering? In a sense of calling out God's call in your life. You see, and we're sitting back saying, God doesn't want me to do anything. I'm giving you a heap of things you need to do, okay? Um, we, get too taught, we get too caught up in God's specific will for our life that we actually fail to do what God's told us to do. There's enough in there to do without having a specific call on your life as being the church. Okay? Like Ruth's testimony this morning, that lady was being the church. It's simple. She was being the church. She might not even be able to get to church anymore, but when Ruth went to see her, she was in fellowship. And she appreciated that so much that she prayed for her. The best thing she could do was What about this one? You keep your tomatoes for later. You don't have to throw them. What about this one? It's bringing correction when there is wrong. Christian maturity is actually about receiving correction. If you're corrected by a brother or a sister or even one of the leaders or elders in the church, how you respond will reveal your unit, your your maturity, and it will reveal how unified you are to the cause of Christ. I'll throw a couple out to you. Gossip. How are you going with your gossip this week? Were you all talking about me behind my back over my Facebook posts? This guy's lost it. Seriously. I'm throwing a fun thing out there, but like, really, where's our gossip? And, and what about holy Christian gossip? Like, there is no such thing. If you think you're being concerning... Um, uh, that you're concerned and you're showing love by going to someone else and talking about that person behind their back, then you're not actually showing Christian love. You should go to the person. Seriously, it saves a lot of problems. Gossip. What about, ooh, here we go. Steve, you're in trouble now. What about parties? Ooh. <laughs> what about tardiness? Seriously. What about starting worship at 10 o'clock in the morning and 60% of your church turns up at 10.30? Like, that's tardiness. And what about the new people who are sitting in the church congregation going, if half the church can't even turn up on time, why am I even here? Like, that, that's tough. And if you're going to go home and cry about that, then I'm going to challenge your maturity. I'm going to. It's just... I've got to. That's what I have to say. I'm on tape. It's going on Facebook tomorrow. Like, seriously, it's there. So if you go home and have a cry and you ring me and say, Steve, that was a harsh word, I'm going to say, suck it up, sunshine. Like, I've got it. It's on tape. I have to do it. But tardiness, you know, like, there are the odd times. I'm feeling for the mothers at the moment in the church. Getting a couple of kids ready or four or five kids ready to get to church on time is an immense effort. I know that. I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions to this. But it's not hard to set yourself a deadline to get something. You know, like, to me, if I walked into a church and people weren't there at 10 o'clock ready to worship, that would speak to me that these guys don't value worship. 
And then if I'm up here and I'm leading worship and there's 20 people down the back talking and then another 30 people walk in 30 minutes later, I'm like, they don't even value what I'm doing. And that doesn't promote unity or maturity. Does that make sense? Like, this person, these people have prepared all week. They've met, they've, they've prayed, they've, they've, they've sought the songs that they want to bring, but then they get here and there's 20 people. I've had this conversation. That's sad for them. Thankfully, they find their value in Jesus. But Christian unity, and maturity comes from hearing these words and being challenged by them. There is grace in all of that we know. What about the grace of the person learning to minister, making a mistake, setting an example, all of these things? They all come into Christian unity, Christian growth, Christian ministry, Christian maturity. It's all about what we are as God's workmanship. And I'll finish with this passage of Scripture. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we come into the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. Here's the kicker for you. This is why maturity and unity is so important that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. There's a lot of messed up doctrine out there, guys, on the airwaves. There's a lot. And if you separate yourself from the unity of the body, you will be open to being wishy-washy in your faith. So that, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, you and I, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Christian maturity is about edification. Unity in the body is about being the fullness of God's created purpose for His church. If we're ever going to make an impact in this city, we need to live as God has called us to. Amen? stand to our feet as we pray. Father, I want to thank you for this morning and I, I thank you for the richness of your word. I thank you, Lord God, that um, it will challenge us and inspire us this week. That the message was heard in love and that love will transform. Lord, we thank you that by knowing the person of love, we find identity and we find purpose. And our purpose is to bring you glory. So this week we commit, Lord God, to bring you glory. We want to operate as the body of Christ. We want to be unified. We want to be open. We want to be led by your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you that you go with us. 
open doors for us this week. Give us people that we can share love with, that will know that we are mature and we can express love through Jesus.